My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and man, episode 7 of Rings of Power did not come anywhere close to the top of my episodes list in this series. I hate this episode with a passion, and oddly enough, it came from what would seem like a minor thing, but it was, the way it was done did so many things wrong on so many levels that it clarified something for me. And it was the last straw, and I just couldn't take it. Now, before I get into all the details of all that, let's do the usual. I'm going to talk about some non-spoilery type stuff, some of my wife's thoughts, and then I'll get into the spoilers. So as far as my overall impressions of this episode, guess what? The writing is still kind of bad, although, you know, a lot of the actual dialogue in this one was kind of okay. It was better than probably average for most of the episodes, although there were still times where I felt like they were reaching for something that felt like Tolkien but didn't really quite get there. Every now and then they kind of almost did, so in that aspect the writing improved a little bit, but the narrative coherence is still garbage. There are so many things in this episode that I was just like, that makes no sense, that makes no sense, that makes no sense, why is nobody making sense? Elrond and Durin are back, and their relationship remains the best part of this entire series so far. Um, it's not near enough to salvage it, and there are weird things that happen in their storyline. We get all three plot lines, because let's face it, Galadriel's in the Southlands is really just one plot line for, this, for purposes of this episode, at least. Uh, so... We get all the major plot lines. We don't get any Gilgalad or Celebrimbor, but all the other major players are here, pretty much. And we get a little bit of everything. So, fortunately, because there are only really three plot lines now, it's not quite so bad as trying to follow four and cramming all that in. But it still felt like very little happened in a lot of ways. In some ways, very little happened, but in some ways, this is the most progress we've made. So, in that sense, it was kind of nice. So, the other the other major compliment that I, give, can, I could potentially give this episode is that, cinematically, it was pretty good. But the lore-breaking and the logic-twisting, just, I can't handle it anymore. Like, this... I have officially decided I am not going to watch Season 2 and review it episode by episode, for sure. Probably won't watch it at all, unless I just happen to have a Prime account at, at that point in the future and have nothing better to do. Because at this point, it's like, I don't care how good the other four seasons of this is going to be. This one is too bad. And they have just screwed up so many things at this point that I just can't... You can't fix it now. It's broken beyond repair. You cannot undo the damage. It's just stupid. So that's kind of my overall impressions in terms of non-spoiler stuff. Let me get into some of what my wife had to say in terms of non-spoilers. She also still likes the Durin-Elrond plotline, their relationship. She really liked... Durin and Disa as a married couple thought that was a really good example of like a healthy marriage uh, and I have to agree with her there I think for the most part they actually do a good job of having these two be kind of equals where they can kind of you know give and take and not 
take it badly and but also be firm in their positions. And so they do a pretty good job with Duran and Disa, I think, and with Duran and Elrond. Um, she still has like no interest in most of the characters. Can't remember most of their names. She couldn't remember Isildur's name, which is kind of a problem given that Isildur is going to be a major character sometime in the future. And my wife is going to be watching this and spoilers. Sorry. Um, but that we're, we're, I mean, it's going to happen. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Isildur becomes a major character in the future, if you didn't already know that. Um, so she legitimately didn't remember his name. There was a conversation where she missed out on a few things with Galadriel talking about a certain other individual, and this is where my complaints really come in, that she kind of missed out on. But this was the, really the first episode, I think, that she told me that she just didn't like. And she said that there were a lot of logic problems for her. And some of this gets into the plot. But, I mean, like, based on what happened at the end of last episode, it's not really spoilers. So, for example, she was kind of like, why is nobody seemingly hurt by the, you know, the giant volcanic explosion? Galadriel's fine. Theo is fine. All the heroes seem to be fine. I mean, there there are a few people who are dead slash injured in the town, but... For all we know, those are people who got taken out by flying rocks, not the actual, you know, smoke cloud that comes out. It might be a pyroclastic flow. I'm not a scientist. I'm not giving any kind of statement on that. I've seen people say one thing. I've seen people say another thing. I'm not taking a position. All I know is it was a giant cloud of smoke, and it apparently did no significant damage to anybody. So she had some issues with that, and, you know... the fact, well, there's, I don't want to get into that one because that one is kind of spoilery. I'll have to get into that one later. So she actually had a lot of spoiler-related type comments. And so I'll have to get to some of those later just to cover a few more things that she said that were not really plot-heavy related. She also mentioned that nobody's really coughing even though they're theoretically all in a giant smoke cloud still. They really all ought to be like hacking up a lung until they get out of the smoke. Um... And again, that's kind of plot related, but everybody knows that's going to be the case here. Um, she was, she liked the comment, actually. There's a point where Durin, I think it was Durin, makes a comment about being forged in his mother's womb. And she said that she kind of liked that as a dwarvish way of, you know, having a metaphor about, you know, childbearing and childbirth, which I kind of agree. I found it kind of corny, but I think I found it corny because so many of the prior colloquialisms that they've invented for this show have been just kind of weird, and so when that one hit, it just didn't land, I think, as well as it really should have, so I mean, that's partially just because the way they've done everything up to this point has not been that great, but on its own terms, I think it's fine. Uh, She also said it was just too slow, there was too much of the Harfoot stuff, too much that was just eh. Um, the fact that we don't really feel like there's any stakes because we don't care about these characters or there's seems to be no real danger to the characters. And then she kind of wrapped up by also saying she has very little desire to watch anymore, but is going to just because she's a completionist. So (laughs) to be perfectly honest, if I wasn't reviewing this season and hadn't committed to reviewing the whole season, I'm not sure I would watch the last episode. I am that mad about some of the things they did so 
let's get into the spoilers, shall we? Now, the episode starts off in the Southlands and ends in the Southlands, but I'm going to hold off on the Southlands for a bit. I'm going to talk about the Harfoots. And there's some really stupid stuff here. You may remember that in the last episode that we saw the Harfoots, which was actually two episodes ago, there was the whole thing of... There was the whole scene where the stranger is healing his arm in water and freezing the water around his arm, and then Nori rather stupidly grabs it and then gets hurt and then is all afraid of the stranger. There's no memory of that in this episode. They're all just still making their way, and the next thing you know, they think they're at their location. Poppy and the the Brandyfoots are all kind of at the back for whatever reason, even though they've got... The only big person pulling their cart... By the way, Largo seems to have a perfectly fine foot by this point, so why the stranger's having to pull the cart at this point, I don't know. They think they're at the Grove, and then they round the corner and find all the rest of the Harfoots there, and some debris from Mount Doom, which is not called Mount Doom yet, has apparently landed and scorched the trees, and the fruit is all ashes, and they're like, eh, this is not good. Sadok comes up to the Brandyfoots and says, well, why don't we ask your friend, the big one, to help out and fix it? And Nori, for whatever reason, is like, "Eh, I'm not sure I want to do that. And Poppy kind of steps in and says, well, he's already done so much for us, it would be kind of rude to ask him to do more. Maybe this is supposed to be like some kind of reference to the previous thing where Nori got hurt and then was skittish about the stranger, but why would Poppy know about that? I don't know. I don't understand this scene. But anyway, Sadok says, well, I'm just going to ask him anyway. And he starts going up there. And the stranger is already apparently trying to do it. We can actually hear him saying, in Vinyata. And if you know your Lord of the Rings at least really well, you know that uh, Aragorn takes the name in Vinyatar at the end, and it means renewer. So he is apparently trying to renew the tree. And in fact, Nori's younger sister, whose name I forget because she's totally unimportant, kind of steps forward and says, it's working, because there actually is a change manifesting in the tree. And so she starts walking up towards the tree. Goodness knows why. Oh, that's right, because the plot needs it to happen. And as the stranger is doing his thing, one of the branches weakens and falls, and Nori has to basically tackle her sister to the ground. And as a result, they barely miss getting hit by the tree, and everybody is scared of the stranger again. Even even though, like, in the previous example, it was because of stupid person's fault getting in a position that was obviously dangerous and shouldn't have been there anyway. Like, what was she planning to do? Go up there and help him magically renew the tree? <laughs> it wasn't anywhere near being normal. Anyway, this results in the stranger stopping what he's doing. The tree remains looking kind of ugly. And it just ends with... You know, nothing really happening there except that he's presumably from his facial expression. We don't get any words. We get fewer words. Actually, I don't think the stranger talks at all in this episode, even though he's clearly learned some words from Nori along the way. I don't think he says anything. But from his face, you get the idea that he's kind of having that same kind of internal conflict like, oh, I'm a danger to the people around me. We later see him talking to Sadok, who gives him a page with the same star formation that Nori was trying to find in the book. How this got there, I don't know, because I thought that page burned up, and I don't know, whatever, who cares? But Sadok is basically saying, that over there is Greenwood the Great. Okay, so 
Most of you probably know that as Mirkwood. So they're near Greenwood the Great. How in blazes did the dadgum debris from Mount Doom fly all the way from Mordor? Go check a map, people. That ain't happening. No possible way. You've got all the brown lands in between. Mirkwood does not go that far. Maybe it, you know, at some point it might have gone that far. I don't think there's any indication that it ever went that far. So Greenwood the Great being close enough for Mount Doom to hurl debris. I mean, Mount Doom itself is, you know, tens, dozens of miles at least south of the northern fence of Mordor anyway. So, anyway, he's saying there's human settlements over on the other side. Maybe they can help you find these stars. But all I know about it is they've got, you know, we haven't seen these stars since, you know, thousands of years ago when we were wandering in other parts of the world. Stranger goes off. And, you know, that's kind of it. Next morning, Nori wakes up to find Poppy eating an apple, and she's all like, why are you eating an apple? we got to save our food. And Poppy's like, uh, actually... And she looks, and look, the entire grove is just blossoming and everything. So whatever the stranger did actually worked. It just took overnight to do it. So they start getting food, and the next thing you know, we see a scene where the three mystics or whatever we want to call them, from, again, two episodes ago, who found Meteor Man's landing site. They are in the area, seeing things, doing, you know, checking out, whatever. And, of course, now we have to wonder, like, when did they find the landing site? How did they catch up to him this fast? Like, how did they find him at all? I mean, never mind, never mind. But, at one point, they are, they... At night time, they come up to the tree that was healed by the stranger. There's like a little flower sticking out where he had his hand. And one of them takes the flower. And obviously they are recognizing whatever's going on here. Nobody says anything. None of them ever say anything. But Nori and some others see what they're doing. And so they get worried. And they start walking off in the path that the stranger took. Nori pipes up and is like, no, actually he went over that way. Which is... Such an obviously, <laughs> it's obvious that she's trying to misdirect him, so what did you really think was going to happen here? Uh, but when she she turns around and says it went that way, and then she turns around again, and they're gone. Then, all of a sudden, they're right next to her and about to pot- potentially do something bad, but then Largo shows up, and he's got like a flaming brand in his hand, and he sticks it up at him and says, I'll brain you if you do anything to her, and the lead one takes it with his her his androgynous person her i assume bare hand quenches the fire and then and then all of their carts light on fire which of course is absolutely terrible because that's where they live how they move i mean that's a big deal for these guys and then of course the three mystics take off and go do their thing before I finish this, I did forget to mention one thing which I found incredibly stupid. When they're all gathering the newly revived Grove's fruit, there's a Harfoot who, I wouldn't even have noticed this if I didn't have subtitles on, but one of them says something like, we're going to go to market with this crop. And I'm like, you don't have a market? You're a bunch of hunter-gatherer wandering people. You don't even have stuff. If they'd have markets, that's the weirdest economy ever, that they go around with crops, which doesn't happen, gather stuff and sell it, which doesn't happen in that kind of an economy. I mean, like, 
that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the next morning they're all cleaning up and Nori is, you know, just kind of dazed and not happy about it. And she tells her Marigold, which I guess is her stepmom, you know, I was wrong. I should have just stayed on trail. I'm just a Harfoot and, you know, but anyway, Largo ends up making a rousing speech. If you could call it that, it's really not that rousing of a speech. And this is, he gives the line about their hearts being bigger than their feet. He says what they do better than any other people is to stay true to each other, except for the fact that they all wanted to leave the proud, I mean, the Brandyfoots behind. So, yeah, they really stay true to each other really well. But, yeah, sure, I mean, you're the victim of them not doing that, but sure, you go ahead and say that. Anyway, then Nori's like, you know what, I am going to go, this, you know, convinces her that she was right all along, and she's going to go save the stranger by catching up and warning him that there's people coming behind, even though he's got a lead on them, and they've got a lead on her. How he's, how she's going to find him or get there before the other people or it makes absolutely no sense. But then Poppy, of course, also joins in. And then even Malva, who is the one who has been trash talking the Proudfoot, not Proudfoot, Brandyfoots this whole time. She even says, you were right the whole time. And then Sadok says, you know, it'd be nice if you weren't right all the time. Which, of course, is like a married couple type response, right? But it's so stupid because Malva has literally been wrong the entire time and is now contradicting everything she's ever said. So the comment makes no sense. It's just like, what? What kind of writing is this? It's so stupid. It's just stupid. It's so stupid. And this is part of the reason why this show is bad, but this isn't even getting close to the worst of it. Now let's talk about Elrond and Durin and all that fun stuff. Elrond is presenting his case to Durin III, who is our main character, Durin IV's father, asking for the right to get some Silmaril, and he says, I know what we want to take from your mountain is sacred, so we're going to offer something sacred in return. He talks about trees from Eriador and some other stuff. And I'm just sitting there going, man, stop with the trees being sacred thing. Also, why is Mithril sacred? They literally just discovered it. Like, what... I don't even know why any of that stuff is called sacred, but okay, sure, whatever. During the third, asks him, why should I trust any elf? And Elrond says, you shouldn't, but you can trust me. And then he goes on and makes a comment about how he being a half-elf and he can kind of see in elves things that they don't see in themselves. Which is kind of a nice twist on the whole idea of the half-elven being almost a pejorative when Gil-Galad uses it. <laughs> in prior episodes um but it's it's also kind of like well you you still chose to be of the first kindred elrond you're still an elf and whatever so anyway durin says well i'm going to talk to my son and then of course elrond has to leave durin and durin talk to each other and durin the fourth is trying to put forth his argument saying we should help him and during the third's like, nope, I'm not going to risk any more dwarven lives, and that's final. Uh, so ultimately, Durin has to go and tell Elrond that I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. After he has a conversation with Disa about all of this, and one of the interesting things that happens in this conversation is Disa's like, well, why don't you just not listen to him and open up the mine again and do it yourself? And he says, well, what kind of father would I be if I taught my kids the lesson that you can just disobey the king, you know? And 
you know, I mean, that's actually a valuable lesson. It's like you can't just flout authority anytime you want to, and so it kind of makes sense. But then the problem is, as soon as Elrond leaves, Durin, in a fit of being upset, well, I forgot to mention, Elrond gives him back the piece of mithril that Durin gave him as kind of like a gift of friendship or whatever. He takes it and he slides it across the table, and it just happens to end near where the leaf is, which apparently Elrond got the leaf from Gilgalad, or a leaf from Gilgalad, and brought it there and gave it to Durin. And But anyway, as it's there, Disa notices that in proximity to the mithril, the, heat, the leaf is restored back to its normal condition. Now, as many people have pointed out on Twitter already, this does not prove that the mithril is from the light of the Silmaril conducted through electricity from lightning and all this other bizarre nonsense. But it does indicate that mithril has healing properties, which is completely without foundation in any of Tolkien's writings, as far as I know, and which would imply that, yes, in fact, it could restore the elves, which also has no foundation in any of Tolkien's writings, as far as I know. Which also, by the way, Durin Third made an interesting point, which I thought was kind of valid, although kind of strange, when he was arguing with Durin Fourth, and he said, the fate of the elves was decided many ages ago. I'm not sure why he said many ages, because ultimately they're still in the second age, which means it had to have been no earlier than like the first age. <laughs> so it's really only a couple ages ago at most. At any rate, he said, it was decided by minds greater and wiser than ours. Which, you know, I mean, that kind of makes sense. So then, you know, if the fate of... How would he know what the fate of the elves is, though? And how, how would he know specifically that it was for them to fade unless they got access to Mithril? And I, I, I don't know. But also, as many people have pointed out on Twitter... Why do they need Mithril for the light of the two trees when there's a star called Erendil, who is Elrond's daddy, up in the sky every night? Answer me that one. So this, again, like, the writing just fails all narrative coherence all the time. Anyway, when they see that the, the, the leaf gets healed, they're like, Elrond! Trying to catch him before he goes. Next thing you know, he and Elrond are down where the Mithril mine was, and they're doing stuff. They take a quick break. Elrond reveals that he actually lost their contest on purpose, and they have kind of a nice little scene where, you know, they just do, they talk about stuff that isn't necessarily all that plot-related, but it's, it's nice character development, and this is the thing. It's like, if they could spend more time on that kind of stuff... I wouldn't mind the slow burn. It's the fact that nothing happens and nothing else is good that's the real problem. But in the process of this conversation, Elrond mentions that Durin is the son of Durin and the grandson of, and he doesn't get to finish the sentence, but it's obviously going to be Durin again, which means Durin III's father is Durin II. Now, given the fact that we're at the end of the Second Age, and that would be the Durin II, Durin I is the first dwarf in the all the Longbeard history, which means apparently it goes an age and a half between Durin the first and Durin the second, and then all of a sudden it's Durin the second, Durin the third, Durin the fourth. Why? Why did you have to do that? That's so... It makes no sense. It's like, Do they think that the dwarves popped up as a race just a few hundred years ago? What are we supposed to take from this? It's so bizarre to anybody who knows the lore, 
Or even if you don't know the lore, if you just think about it for a few seconds, it's like, have dwarves only been around that long? Is Durin just a name that then got handed down? Like, it's before Durin there was somebody else? It's like, if that's what they're trying to go for, it's like, that's even worse, because Durin is literally the first dwarf, period. Like, he is the eldest of the eldest of the dwarves. So if they're trying to make it like Durin is just some other name that, you know, Henry the First, Henry the Second, Henry the Third, but that's not the first king of England, it's like, well, thanks for even squatting on some more lore for me, but that's not the worst part, guys. It's really not. So we get this conversation, and that makes no sense. But anyway, they poke a hole, finally, in the, the rock, and they look in, and there's just this big vein of mithril going down into a huge, giant chasm. Elrond, of course, gets all excited, turns around, and there is Durin the Third, you know, basically scowling at him, and Durin the Fourth's like, ah. And, of course, Durin the Third ultimately kicks Elrond out. He's brought to the entrance of Khazad-dûm and just kind of sits down in defeat. And then we see Durin the Third and Durin the Fourth talking again, and not much of any significance happens, but ultimately Durin the Third pulls this crest off of during the fourth neck, like it's some kind of a necklace type thing, and throws it to the ground and tells him, leave it, it's not yours anymore. Now this looked to me like a scene where he's just disowning him, saying that you're not going to inherit the kingship at this point, you're done. Uh, but then we get another scene with Durin and Disa talking, and Disa's, you know, encouraging him, saying that, you know, one day this will all be yours. And, you know, it's not going to be your brothers or some other dwarf lords. It's going to be you that inherits it. And then we can reopen the mines. So it's like, was she trying to just encourage him that it'll get fixed and that Durin the Third will come around? Or was that not supposed to be a sign of him being the heir? Or what was the significance of that scene? It's confusing. It's not clear. It's like, that's bad storytelling. Anyway, then we get to see Durin the Third telling the other dwarves to seal up the chasm after he takes the leaf and throws it in, the leaf floats down to the bottom of the chasm where it catches fire, and then we see a Balrog. That's it. That's all the Elrond and Durin stuff. So, I mean, like, not really much happened, but in some sense there was actually some plot progression there, because, yes, there's Mithril, can we have it? No, we're going to try to get it anyway. Gets caught, you know, but then there's a Balrog, and it's like, why is the Balrog there? It's just another thing to tease. Because I guarantee you that Balrog is not going to come out in Episode 8 and do anything. That's just not going to happen. You know why? Because too much else has to happen in Eregion first. So, that's pointless. It's just another way to be like, ooh, interesting, cool, Lord of the Ringsy stuff. So it's annoying. It's pointless. It's dumb. It's, you know, whatever. And there's, I don't even think, I may be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure it's not per se the Mithril that led them to the Balrog. I might be misremembering that, but regardless. Now we get to talk about the Southlands, and this is where all the really, really bad stuff happens. We start off with Galadriel waking up. Apparently she was knocked to the ground and knocked out, and she's covered in dust, ash, whatever. She stands up, and then she hears Theo calling out, and... You don't really see anybody else around much. I mean, there's a couple people. But she and Theo go off on their own. Don't apparently look for anybody or try to do anything. They just go. <laughs> and this begins... I'm, I'm going to go out of order a little bit here. Because a lot of people 
just get assumed dead in this episode. Like, Galadriel and Theo leave and don't apparently try to look for anybody. Other people, other Numenorians will have set out and will have left behind other Numenorians that will then, they will just not have known about. And I'm just sitting here going, all of you were in this one little village. How could you all have been separated from each other in so simple a fashion that you couldn't all come together? It's like, okay, you can't see very far through the smoke, but you can at least see a couple dozen yards based on what we see in the show. And all you got to do is shout. Like, it's not hard. And So why is it that everybody ends up in all these different places and has to find each other again? It's just nonsense. And I'll get to this a little more in detail when we get to the various characters. Galadriel and Theo wander off on their own. Next thing you know, we see Isildur trying to help Volandil out of a pile of rubble because he's smushed under it. And he's asking him, where's Ontimo? And he said, I'm, he didn't really know for sure, but Queen Muriel comes over, helps Isildur left, lift up the stuff off of him, and Volandil comes out and then outrolls Ontimo's dead body. So Ontimo's dead. Big surprise, right? One of Isildur's friends who is not important to the story at all dies. Well, they end up going past a house where there's some people trapped inside, and they try to get some of them out. Muriel, for some reason, is the one who goes in. It seems like the the most dangerous job should be done by somebody besides the queen, but, you know, who am I? Isildur is kind of like holding up a post or whatever because the thing's about to fall. I'm not even sure what Volandil is doing this whole time, but Muriel goes in, gets some of them out, tries to go back in. A post falls and just about bangs her on the head, or maybe it even does bang her on the head. I'm not sure. And she falls out, and then the roof collapses. And then the next thing you know, Volandil and Muriel are sitting there, and Volandil's saying, Isildur! Like, he doesn't know where he is, and it's like, doesn't get up, doesn't try to find him, just sits there and calls out his name. Next thing you know, the two of them are walking along outside, trying to find the rest of the Numenorians who are being headed up by Elendil. How Elendil got all these other Numenorians and all these other Southlanders who are being evacuated essentially together, but apparently didn't find Muriel, Volandil, Isildur, Galadriel, or Theo. Anybody's guess. It doesn't make any dang sense. But anyway, they meet up with Elendil's group, and Elendil's like, oh, good, the queen's here. It's like, well, yeah, if you'd actually stuck around and looked for her a little bit instead of just running off at the first possible chance you had, apparently... It's like, what did you do? Just assume that everybody lying on the ground was dead and not even bother to check for anybody? Like, the queen ought to be literally the first priority! And you didn't even bother to look! (laughs) Just, apparently. I mean, I don't know how else to interpret this. I really don't. Galadriel and Theo, of course, also continue their journey out. And they have some conversations, and most of it is not very interesting. Theo is hell-bent on revenge for what the orcs have done, and Galadriel's like, chill, man, and he says, well, how many orcs have you killed? And she says, many, and he says, good, and she says, don't use that word, using good, saying that a dark deed is good darkens the heart, and I would agree with her, but the problem is here, like, this saying for her is completely out of character, Like, completely out of character. Just in the previous episode, she was telling Adar, I am going to kill every single orc, and then I'm going to kill you last. 
And by the way, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to like expose him to the sunlight and torture him for a bit first. And, okay, you could... There are things in this episode that make it seem like she's learned a little humility and like maybe she's learning from her experience of all this that maybe she was a little bit too I don't know what because the problem is it's a completely unnatural character progression because what did she do that led to any of this? It was the Numenorians arriving that almost stopped it from happening. The only reason they didn't stop it from happening was because they got there a little bit too late and Waldrig made it out before you know, they could actually catch him. So it's like, she didn't do anything that actually caused any of this problem. She hasn't learned really any significant lesson in all of this, and she hasn't ever in this show displayed anything like the attitude that orcs are worthy of any consideration. Quite apart from the conversation she has with Adar, her life's mission is to find Sauron and kill all the orcs. That's what she's up to the whole time. And she says this to Theo, and I'm just sitting there going, do you actually think it's a dark deed to kill orcs? Because I couldn't have guessed that from all your behavior prior. I mean, it's just not even remotely within the ballpark of anything that would make sense that she would say. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, these writers. It's one thing to have somebody learn a lesson from something that happens, but you have to know how to do it right. As I said, there's nothing in any of this that she played a part in. None of it is her fault. And also, just human nature, and by extension, elf nature. If you're a really prideful, tempestuous personality, let's say, you don't tend to get over that with just one knock on the head that doesn't really have anything to do with something you did backfiring. A, a prideful personality is going to find ways to blame other people and you know somehow make it not their fault by and large. It's very much the rarity that you're going to have somebody experience something and have a complete turnaround be like, oh wow, I was wrong. Now, that happens a lot in movies, but in more, you know, in most movies, it's done better than this one, than in this thing, because, like I said, it just makes no actual sense the way it goes down here if they're trying to make it look like that. By the way, a lot of this conversation kind of comes out of an earlier scene where she and Theo are together overlooking kind of a, a ridge, and I guess they're looking down on some orcs because they're talking about... Theo wants to attack him, and Galadriel's like, no, we have no position, we have no reinforcement, we have nothing. It's like, well, first of all, why are the two of you alone? Second of all, where are these orcs coming from? I mean, as far as we know, the orcs who were with Adar are the only orcs around, and there shouldn't have been many of them left. There weren't that many captives, and why aren't they all just as dead and damaged as the rest of the people around? How did they end up... I mean... What we see throughout this episode is there's like roaming bands of orcs looking for people. So that's weird. And then there's another scene where she and Theo are together and a band of orcs comes along. And, you know, she basically gets Theo to hunker down. Theo, rather stupidly, Galadriel had given him her sword at some point And he starts to unsheath it and it goes the sh, Which it probably wouldn't in real life, but, you know, it's a movie thing. And one of the orcs hears it, and he goes over to where he thinks he hears the sound, and Galadriel's like, don't move, you know. 
uh, for anybody who's listening on podcast is what I was mouthing there. Uh, and the orc comes over and then another one comes up and says, what is it? What do you smell? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, two towers. And the guy says, ashes, nothing but ashes. And I'm, I, I swear my first thought was expectation subverted successfully. It's like you really went for the two towers scene. What is, what do you smell? Man flesh. And of course, that's what everybody is expecting the guy to say. Man flesh. Because there's literally a man flesh person down there named Theo. But the orc is incapable of smelling that through all the ash and dust and who knows whatever else. And it's just like, you just did that intentionally to subvert our expectations. And this will play into something later. Now we get to the really bad stuff. Because they start having another conversation and Theo asks... Have you lost anybody to, you know, the orcs or whatever? And she said, yeah, my brother Finrod and my husband Celeborn. And I'm just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We actually have a Celeborn in this thing. And she goes off on this story about how they met when she was dancing in a glade of flowers. And Oh my gosh, they stole Baron and Luthien's meeting story. Why would you do that? And then it was Celeborn who went off to the war... And she's like, you know, the war seemed so far away then, and then he went off to war. So it sounds like he went off before she did, and he never came back. And so now it's just, okay, so you lost Celeborn to the war, and he's, I guess, presumed dead, because everybody that you don't see in this show is just assumed to be dead, apparently. Um, And nobody bothers to check. (laughs) So... She says that he went off to war, and and she mentions that when he went, he was in this armor that didn't fit well, like he was, and she said that he looked like a silver clam. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you literally just made yourself into some housewife who's like straightening her husband's tie with his, you know, off-the-rack, ill-fitting suit as he goes off to his middle management day job. What is this? This is not Tolkien. But worse than that... She is assuming that Celeborn is dead, which I'm sure he's not, actually. I'm sure he will pop up sometime later in the series, and I don't even care. But they have put him out of the picture so that she can probably have some kind of a love interest story with Halbrand, because that does seem like it might be hinted at in the previous episode. And But it's like, you know, in the story, there are multiple versions of the Galadriel and Celeborn story. Multiple. In all of them, they both go east and never really engage in the war with Morgoth. As far as I can remember. I might be wrong about that. I did a video on the many versions of Galadriel's history you can go find. I'll try to find it myself and link it in the description below. But there's... As far as I remember, in every single version, they do not stay in Beleriand and fight Morgoth. They go off east because they realize it's all hopeless. So he didn't go off to war, he didn't fight Morgoth, and he certainly didn't get captured or killed one way or the other. And so, this is the point that I got so mad. Because what have they done? They took a Baron and Luthien thing, gave it to Galadriel, subverted our expectations about Celeborn, not just as, you know, to just disregard the lore, they did it on purpose to serve their own aims, whatever they may be with Galadriel, and I'm just, I'm over it. I am, I went into this episode 
not even really wanting to watch it because I was just like, I don't really care anymore. But I had a commitment. I was going to review all this season, season one. I was like, I'm going to watch it. And then I hit this scene and the fuse went off. And I just, there's so many things wrong with it. The whole, you know, you look clumsy, clumsy in your armor because it doesn't fit right. Like stealing Baron's love story, making Celeborn presumed dead for no good reason. And by the way, this also sets her up to be like a Fendulas as well, because in the Turin story, Fendulas loves Gwyndor, who goes off and gets captured in the war against Morgoth, brings back Turin, the mortal man, who might be Halbrand in this story, so that she ends up falling in love with Turin, and then Turin goes and messes everything up. Even though in that story, of course, Gwyndor comes back with Turin, but Gwyndor is now maimed and not, you know, who he was, and therefore Fenduelas falls in love with Turin. So it's like they took her, they took Fenduelas, they took Luthien, and they gave kind of elements of both stories to Galadriel so that they could do, I don't know what yet, but I don't care, it's bad. It's just, whatever they're planning is going to be contrary to the actual source material, somehow, what they've done with Celeborn is contrary to the source material, somehow. And I'm not saying that as in, I'm predicting it. I'm saying it as in, I know it. Because, like, Celeborn should be in the picture here. Not out of the picture. Presumed dead, or who knows what. That's just, you cannot get around that one. That is not a time compression issue. That is not, you know, something we're trying to adapt it just to, you know, make the story work. No, this was completely unnecessary. Celeborn could have just been the stay-at-home dad raising Celebrian while Galadriel was off doing her high and mighty proud warrior thing and just wasn't giving a crud about Celeborn and Celebrian back home. No, they didn't do that. The other problem with this is, speaking of Celebrian, she's supposed to marry Elrond in Third Age 109 or 119 or something like that. And elves age slowly, which means he has to be a full-grown adult by that point to marry Elrond which means she needs to be born sometime relatively early or mid-second age. And here we are at the end of the second age, and as far as we can tell, there is no Celebrian, which means Celeborn's got to come back in time to have a baby with Galadriel, who will then only be like a three, four hundred-year-old marrying three-and-a-half-thousand-year-old Elrond. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I just cannot... This this was where they put their foot over the line, and I was just like, no more. Cannot deal with this. But I've got to move on. Getting back to Elendil and all that, of course, when Muriel shows up, Elendil wants to know where his son is, and Valandil and Muriel basically, you know, inform him that He's dead, apparently, and Lindell's just, like, all oh, crushed. Which makes sense, right? Well, as they travel along, Muriel start, asks him, like, how far to the camp, and he says it's just over that ridge, and she says, how far, how long have we been out of the smoke? And he says, about a mile, and she asks the question again, and he's like, what? And then he realizes she's... She says that she can only see gray, so it's not really clear if she's blind, colorblind, going blind, what what exactly the deal is, but she basically tells him, like, don't make a deal out of it, let's just get to the camp and we'll deal with it later. So they continue on, 
and they make it back to camp, and then while there, nobody can calm down Isildur's horse, Beric. Elendil tries, and he won't listen to him either, even though he did in the previous episode. Well, so they end up just letting the horse go, and he gallops off. And, of course, we all know what's going to happen. He's going to find Isildur. And ugh, it's probably going to be another Two Towers moment when it happens, just like Brago found Aragorn. But, you know, I'm just used to the Peter Jackson nods at this point. It's not even worth worrying about. But I just find it really annoying because it's like Isildur, everybody just assumes he's dead. Nobody looked for him just because nobody apparently looked for Muriel. Nobody looked for anybody in this episode. See what I mean? Like Theo and Galadriel wander off by themselves, don't bother to stick with anybody. Everybody evacuates and doesn't even bother to make sure Muriel is there. Muriel and them get out without, I mean, they, I just don't understand it. Anyway, Galadriel and Theo then arrive back in camp. And Theo is trying to find his mom, Bronwyn, and Bronwyn's perfectly fine, by the way. She's walking around totally normally, like she hadn't lost a ton of blood from the previous episode, and like she's just hunky-dory. Arondir is also there, of course, and they, you know, have a reunion and all that. Theo actually straight up hugs Arondir, and Arondir's... <sighs> of the three of them, Bronwyn is the only one that I might classify as a good actress. Arondir sometimes does some stuff that is okay. Theo sometimes does some stuff that's okay. Bronwyn is the only one that I really actually enjoy as an actor in this, uh, of the three of them. Uh, but Arondir just kind of stands there for a second and then embraces Theo, not like in a, oh, you're hugging me type. It was just like a, just standing there like a statue doing nothing. And I'm just like, how awkward is that? <laughs> Uh, anyway, they all meet up and this happens. Galadriel, of course, wants to be taken to Muriel. Uh, she goes and is taken to Muriel, who is now wearing a blindfold and just sitting out wherever. And Galadriel kind of apologizes and says, you know, it's my fault y'all are here in the first place. Muriel ends up saying, you know, don't waste your pity on me. You know, give it to our enemies because they don't know what they've unleashed. I promise that Numenor will be back. And then Galadriel's like, and the elves will be ready. And I'm like, okay, we're right back to same old Galadriel all over again. Nothing has changed. It's like she's, and again, it doesn't make any sense that she would suddenly be having a change of heart or anything. But now it's, as soon as anybody even gives her the opportunity to jump back into warrior mode, she's like, oh yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lindil is kind of fighting against this because he's already said, like, I should have never taken that elf out of the water. I should have left her in the sea. And, of course, he's he's heartbroken over the fact that he thinks Isildur is dead. That's what's going on, so you can kind of understand it. But he's obviously against the whole thing, and Muriel's like, okay, we need to, we're ready to sail with the tide. And that's, you know, that's the plan. They're going to leave. Presumably, they're going to come back with a bigger army, which, you know, of course, you have to wonder, why did they bring such a small force in the first place? Like, they didn't know how many orcs they were going to have to deal with. They brought this little piddly 300-man force, maybe 500, I don't know, and expected that to be all they needed. And now they're going to come back and really bring the full might of Numenor. And it's like, why didn't you just do something like that the first time? And then you wouldn't have had this problem. <laughs> Whatever. So anyway, they've apparently set sail, and we see Galadriel and Bronwyn and some other people talking. Bronwyn's talking about they're going to go to an old Numenorean colony in Pelargir, which, of course, if you know your Middle-earth geography, that's part of Gondor when we get to the War of the Ring. And the way she talks about it implies that Numenor used to have a colony there, but right now it's empty because she mentions the fact that there's land that you can get and there's, you know, other stuff. So that's where they're going to go. And, of course... 
This brings me back to a complaint that I had from way back when, which was, why didn't they just leave Ostirith if they were so worried about the orcs? They could have left, gone to Pelargir, and been safe. But no, they had to stick around because the sword has to end up in the enemy hands so that we can get Mordor. It's The plot is completely contrived based on convenience. What needs to happen, there's nothing natural about the development of this plot. It's just bad, terrible writing. Period. Meanwhile, Galadriel's like, well, I've got to go back to Gilgalad and tell him what's going on and, you know, figure out what we need to do. And then somehow, I don't remember exactly what comes up, but Bronwyn says something about, who was it? I can't even remember who mentioned something about the king that we were promised. I think it was Bronwyn who said it, but... And Galadriel's like, what do you mean? She's like, have you not heard? And she's... Have I not been her? Have I not been informed of what? And she's like... And then, in case you forgot how Brand existed, because he's never been mentioned up to this point, they take him... They take uh, Galadriel to a tent where Halbrand is laying there with a wound, obviously, in his abdominal region. And... Gladrill says, I thought you were dead. Because again, if you're off screen, you're dead. Caliborn's dead. Sildor's dead. All these people are dead because we can't see him. I mean, it's just... It's so stupid, okay? I just... I'm sorry. I went from indifference to anger in this episode. That is what happened. This episode broke me. But Halbrand's like... You know, I kind of wish I had died. And Gladrill looks at his wound and says, He needs elvish medicine. Another Peter Jackson reference. And so, what does she do about this? She has him get up, walk out, and mount a horse by himself. And he walks out fine. He looks a little pale, but other than that, he looks good. Like, what do you mean he needs elvish medicine? You're going to ride to Linden from freaking Mordor with a guy who's got an abdominal wound? Have you ever ridden a horse? You can't ride a horse with a gaping wound in your gut. And you sure don't make it, you know, leagues and leagues and leagues, days, months, journey. I mean, you you sure can't gallop with that wound. So if you're going to go at an easy trot, it's going to take you at least as long as it took Boromir to find Rivendell, for goodness sake. By then, he's going to be dead if he needs elvish medicine. What the? No logic. None. And then the final scene of the episode. And here we have one last stupid thing. The, I think it's Waldrig. It's really hard to tell because of the smoke or whatever. He, you know, starts saying that Adar is now Lord of the Southlands. And Adar says, no, the Southlands is the name of a place that doesn't exist anymore. And somebody's like, well, what should we call it now? Well, actually, it might have been Orc that said he was the Lord of the Southlands. I can't remember. Waldrig, I assume it's Waldrig, speaks up at some point in this. And Adar just kind of sits down, and the camera pans up, and we see the Southlands come across the screen like we usually see it when it goes the map, and it shows us where we are. And then the Southlands vanishes away, and then Mordor burns into the screen. Nobody says the word Mordor. It just... we it's It's like a fourth wall break, almost, the way they do it, and it's just... So cheesy and dumb. It's like, why did you do it that way? It would have made so much more sense for somebody to say, you know, now it's the land of shadows. It's Mordor. 
And that would have actually made some sense and been a halfway decent line, but they couldn't even bring themselves to write a decent line that was begging to be written. They had to do this corny thing. And that's the end of the episode, and I'm just so glad. And I'm going to be so glad when I'm done with episode 8, because I've had enough of this garbage. Thanks to all supporters of the channel, especially Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.